The scripture reading is from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1, 4, and 5, and the book of Joshua, chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. It can be found on pages 807 and 178, respectively, in the Black Bibles. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nation, and Nation, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, and especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab, and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, the men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with the stalks of flax that she had laid in, in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to Jordan as far as the fords. And the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you went out before you when you came out to Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, Please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward, you may go your way. The men said to her, we will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers, and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said to them, according to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away and they departed. 
and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Rose family. And thank y'all for being here. My name is John Trapp. I'm the senior pastor here at Christ the King. Particular welcome to any visitors who came to see those awesome kids sing this morning. Particularly happy to have y'all here. Thanks for being here. Um, at Christ the King, we believe that Christianity is for all kinds of people. And there's no better proof of that than the people that God chose to have in his genealogy, in his family. When you look at the genealogy of Jesus, you find crooks, you find cowards, you find prostitutes like Rahab and murderers even. And if Jesus was not ashamed to be associated with them, then that means that there's hope for people like us. And so at Christ the King, what we do is we consider this God who loves sinners like us every week as we gather around his word. And so this week, what we're going to do is continue our series of looking at the mothers of Jesus, these five women who are listed in the genealogy of Jesus and what they reveal to us about the heart of God. So let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time in his word. Father, as we consider now what your word would have to say to us, we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to see you, Lord Jesus, to see your grace, to see our need for repentance and your willingness to forgive. And we ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to imagine for me, if you can, that it's a normal Saturday, maybe you have some chores to do around the house, but instead you decide to go exercise, Maybe you get lunch with a friend afterwards and kind of linger with them, go run a couple errands. You get back home to kind of a messy house, but you've had a long day, so you sit on the couch, put your feet up, maybe put on some college football, it's four o'clock, and then you remember that your boss is coming over in one hour. How would you be feeling? There's an arrival that's coming in one hour. Maybe, maybe that doesn't make you feel squeamish enough. Let's say it's your mother-in-law. It's coming in an hour. My, my mother-in-law watches this live stream, so goody, I love you. But, but I'm pro-mother-in-law. But I want you to imagine that there's judgment coming with an arrival. That is what's happening here with Rahab. There's an advent that's about to happen. The word advent comes from the Latin word adventus, which literally means arrival. And so during the advent season, what we consider here and what Christians have considered for centuries is both the first arrival of the Lord Jesus, but also the reality that we believe that there's going to be a second arrival, that Jesus is coming again, a second advent. So as we consider that in this season, I think it's really beautiful for us to look at this advent that Rahab experiences. So three things as we consider her story that I want you to look at. First, the coming arrival or the coming advent. Second, preparing for the arrival. And third, preparing others for the arrival. 
So first, the coming arrival. The reason that Rahab is going to prepare for this coming arrival, that she's considering this coming arrival, is she considers, if you look in the passage, you'll see she's considering the facts that she's observing around her. Look at verse 10. She talks about how both she and all these people living in Jericho have heard about the escape from Egypt that God engineered for his people. They've heard about the defeat of the Amorites. And in hearing about this and seeing its effect on the world, their hearts are melting. They're afraid. Now, the reality is Rahab couldn't be there to witness this happening. She doesn't, she, there's no pictures of this exodus from Egypt. There's no pictures of this defeat of the Amorites, but instead what she's seen is the effect of this conquest on the world. The same is true for us as we consider the second coming of Jesus, his second advent. When we begin to think about could that occur, I want you to think about the effect, even though we weren't there to see his first advent, we don't have pictures of his first advent, I want you to consider the effect of Jesus' first advent in our world. A pastor named James Allen, I think, does this quite well with a poem he wrote called One Solitary Life that I want to read for you. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. He never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things usually associated with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when his friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race and the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that have ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that have ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth as powerfully as that one solitary life. This is the effect of the first advent of the Lord Jesus. And so the question for you is what about his second? What about his second coming? Because Rahab, she hears this story of what God has done in the Exodus, which is when you look throughout the Old Testament, it is the Old Testament salvation story of God's people. And so the question that you and I have to face is do we believe in the New Testament 
Exodus story. Jesus actually calls it that. On the Mount of Transfiguration, he talks about the Exodus that he is going to lead. And so you see these beautiful parallels between the two stories. What what God's people were going through in the Old Testament Exodus, a genocidal king who's wiping out their baby boys, Jesus is born into that New Testament Exodus story with Herod. God's people who are in bondage in Egypt, Jesus shows up to a people who are in bondage to sin and death. God sends Jesus into a world where he saves his people and acts as the Passover lamb so that they may be spared from destruction just as God gives a Passover lamb to his people in the Exodus story so that they may not be destroyed but be passed over. Jesus gives us the Exodus story of going into the wilderness of death on the cross. And Jesus is the fulfillment of the Exodus story leading his people into the promised land. And he tells us that he goes there to prepare a place for us. So the question for you is the same question that Rahab had, which is, do I believe this Exodus story? Do you believe the New Testament Exodus story of God's salvation for his people? Because the reality is all of us have to deal with it. Because there is an advent coming. And it's a heart-melting terror the people of Jericho. It is a heart-melting terror that there is an undefeatable army that's coming to conquer. And the reality is, if the Bible is true, that awaits us. That there is a day where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess at the second advent that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And that day will be a joy to some, but a terror to others. So how do you prepare for the arrival? Second point. How do you prepare for this Advent? You see in this passage, there's two ways that the Advent is prepared for. And we see one of the ways played out by the king of Jericho. Look at verses two and three. What does the king do? He finds out and he wants to eliminate the spies. He wants to get them in his midst, which is, by the way, what Herod does when he hears the wise man's testimony about this first advent that's coming with Jesus. Because the king is threatened. It's hard, here's the deal, it's hard to long for a new kingdom to come when you're the king. It's hard to long for a new kingdom when you're in the castle and you're comfortable and things are the way that you like them to be. And the arrival of Jesus is a threat to my personal kingdom and to your personal kingdom. And we feel that, don't we? The arrival of Jesus is a threat to us. And I was thinking about how we how we respond to that, the ways that we fight against that or respond to that. And it made me think about the the stages of grief. The five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. 
And I'm not going to tease out all of those, but a couple of, the, a couple of, the, of those that I want to talk about. One is denial. One way I see people responding to, and I see this in myself sometimes, responding to the advent of Jesus is just to try to deny it, try not to think about it, try not to think about the threat of a new kingdom coming. Herbert Fingeret is an existential philosopher at Cal Berkeley. He spent most of his career focusing on the philosophy of death. In 1996, he wrote a book arguing that fearing one's own demise was irrational. When you die, he writes, there is nothing. Why should we fear the absence of being when we won't be there ourselves to suffer from it? It's really interesting. Last year in 2020, The Atlantic did a documentary. It's like a 19-minute documentary, if you want to watch it, about Herbert Fingeret, who's now 97 years old, or he was 97 years old at the making of the film. And what you see is that this man who for decades has spent time writing about death, philosophizing about death, is at the doorstep of death. And in that documentary, he says, I walk around often and ask myself, what's the point of it all? There must be something I'm missing. I wish I knew. We can deny the end of our kingdom for a while. But eventually a new king is coming. So perhaps you bargain with that king. Maybe, maybe the solution is to bargain with that king, to say, hey, you know what? You can have a little bit of property here, but I need to keep some of my, my interests, my stuff. And man, I think that's us. I think that's me. I'm guessing it's probably you. Bargain with the king. Jesus, you can have my schedule, but not my kids' sports tournament schedule on Sunday morning. Or you can have some of my money, but not a full 10% tithe of the money that you ask me to give back to you in obedience. Or, Lord, you can have my language. I'll, I'll, try to stop, I'll try to stop cussing. But don't touch my addiction. Don't touch my relationship with alcohol. In fact, I'll stop cussing, but I don't want to hear anyone talk about my addiction or my relationship with alcohol. Let's bargain. But the problem with that is that he's king and he can't be bargained with. Do you know why? Because he loves you and he knows what's best. C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing. And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. 
throwing out a new wing here, putting an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. So what do we do? How do we prepare for the arrival? Well, if we see the way that Rahab does it, Rahab prepares for this arrival by asking for grace through faith. At this advent, this terrifying, undefeatable force is at the doorstep. And the same is true for us. And maybe you're sitting here thinking, that sounds terrible. And I don't want to believe in a God like that who's going to come and judge the world. But I want you to consider this story. The God who's coming to judge the world is also the God that at this advent shows grace to a prostitute. That's the God who is coming. A God of grace. Why does he save Rahab and Joshua too? Why does he decide to put her in his lineage? Part of the reason has to be that he's showing us who he is and what his character is like and that he really is a God of grace. Not a God that you have to bargain with in order to get him to show you favor or love. He's a God of grace. And so what we see with Rahab is that the way to prepare for the advent is faith. It's to feel your need for grace. And you know what? It's really hard to feel your need for help when you're the king sitting in the castle. It's less hard when you're the prostitute living in the wall around the city. And the fear that I have for you and the fear that I have for me is that we are slow to see that spiritually we are living in the wall as prostitutes around the city. We are spiritual prostitutes, friends who've sold ourselves to many other idols and given ourselves away. And the good news of the gospel is that you don't have to build some kind of kingdom to convince God to accept you or to love you. And you don't have to build some kind of kingdom to make yourself feel secure because you can't. Your kingdom's going to end. Your kingdom is going to end. There is another advent coming. And the invitation for us in this text, I believe, is to see what it looks like to ask for grace by faith. Rahab is referred to in the book of Hebrews, the book of James, as a commendable figure of faith. And both the author of Hebrews and the author of James point that it is it's not just her faith, it's that her faith is played out in the way that she lives. It's actionable faith, faith with teeth in it. It's by faith that she spares these men. It's by faith that she hangs this cord, which again, sounds like, it sounds like another Passover story, right? 
But the blood, the red blood above your doorpost, the the destroyer will pass over you in the book of Exodus. Hang this cord out your window and you will be spared. And it's by faith that she hangs that cord. I mean, there's not a lot else that she can do in there. Cord is hung and that's it. And what James says, as he talks about Rahab in James 2, he says something that sounds very different from what we often preach about at Christ the King. I want you to see if you can hear it. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. That doesn't sound like what we talk about at Christ the King. We're always saying it's by what God has done. It's God's works that save you, not your works. It's faith in what God has done. He goes on to say, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. What kind of math is James doing with us right now? Is he saying faith plus works equals salvation? He's not. He's saying grace by faith equals salvation. And that always also produces salvation and works. Martin Luther, who founded the Reformation, and a big part of him founding the Reformation was his problem with the church saying faith plus works equals salvation. You know what he said? You're saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. Saving faith produces in us, just like it does with Rahab, it produces in us action. It produces fruit. And so my question to you as we are considering as a church preparing for the advent of Jesus, his second coming, are you ready? What's the fruit in your life? The fruit of the spirit is gentleness and joy, kindness, self-control. And love. Do you see these fruit in your life? Do you have faith? Rahab's faith in action looks also like her preparing for the arrival and preparing others for the arrival. You see it? Verse 18. She not only acts in faith for herself she also prepares others for the arrival with hospitality. In verse 18, she gathers in her mother, her father, her brothers, their entire household into this house so that they might experience salvation. It's by Rahab's hospitality that they're saved. And y'all, we believe, we actually believe at this church, if you're a Christian, we believe that we've been saved by God's hospitality. That when we were outside, he brought us in. 
that God arrived in our world and like Rahab, Jesus has interceded for us. Like Rahab, Jesus has saved us from destruction. And for anyone who is in need, Jesus goes before us. And what does he say? What does he tell his disciples he's gonna do? He's gonna go before them and prepare a place for them. We have a God who longs to host us. So the question is, do we really believe this? Do we really believe that we have been hosted by God? And if we do, then how can that not extend out of us in hospitality? And think about the things that this is going to do in us and what it's going to produce in us and in our church. It's one of the reasons that I am so excited about what's happening with Advent Presbyterian, aptly named church for this sermon, by the way. Advent Presbyterian is a church that we are sending one of our pastors, Taylor Leachman, to go and to be hospitable to the medical community, to the Rice University community, to go and to bear the light of Christ in another place in our city because we want to see more and more families of God rising up and hosting people as we have been hosted. So let's get behind that. Let's get behind people who are doing that. Let's urge one another on to show this kind of hospitality. I'll close with this story. Tony Campolo, who's a pastor and speaker, was at a conference and spoke his first night, went to bed, got, couldn't sleep, got up early, like three in the morning, wasn't gonna fall back to sleep, so he decided to go to a local diner. He walked in and... It's just the cook there. It's one of those open 24-hour deals, Waffle House kind of scenario with the open kitchen. He's sitting there eating, and while he's there, about seven or eight women walk in. They pile into some booths in the back. And as they're speaking, and from what they're wearing, he can tell that they're prostitutes. And here's one of the women who the others refer to as Agnes say, you know, tomorrow's my birthday. And one, one of the ladies kind of teases her, like, oh, you want us to throw you a party or something? And Tony hears that and he looks at the cook and he's like, hey, do they come here every night? He's like, yeah, every night. He said, could I bring a birthday cake tomorrow and throw a party? Sure. Will you tell all the other women, but don't tell Agnes? Okay. Next night, three in the morning, Tony's there. He's got his birthday cake. The women all walk in and surprise, happy birthday. They sing to Agnes and she weeps. And they go, the cook gets a knife. He's going to cut the cake. She says, no, 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 will you please wait? Why? No one's ever given me a birthday cake. I want to take a picture of it. And it's at that moment, Tony says, hey, y'all, I'm a pastor. Do you mind like, if I pray for us and pray some prayer and says amen. And the women go t- start talking some more. And the cook looks at him. He's like, you never told me you were a pastor. <laughs> like, yeah, I am. He's like, what kind of church are you a pastor for? Tony thought for one second. He says, I'm a pastor for a church with people who throw birthday parties for prostitutes at three in the morning. And the cook says, no, you're not. Because if there was a church like that, I'd go to it. 
Friends, how will our world know of a hospitable God? Through his people hosting and preparing others for the advent of our good and gracious King, Lord Jesus, who has come and he's changed the world and he's coming again. Let's pray. Father, we do give you thanks that you have come to rescue spiritually unfaithful people like me and like us. And we pray that you would make us more and more like your son, Jesus. And we ask all this in his name, amen.